then had to like, it means they weren't eating that day. And further, these are people who are very close to God's heart. God had revealed in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10, 18, that he is a God who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The world might not care about widows and the orphan and the sojourner, but God does. They're close to his heart. And so what we see here is, is, is one of the facets of this problem is that the very character of the community is at stake. Either they're going to address this very real problem, or they're going to profane the Lord they serve, and they're going to blunt the gospel, and they're going to open themselves to justified mockery by the world. I mean, there's the world. Look, these guys say they believe in the resurrection. They don't even care for their own widows. What a joke. That's the first potential problem here. Second facet of this problem is that there are ethnic tensions here. It says that the complaints by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Again, that means the, the Jewish Christians who spoke Greek and the Jewish Christians who spoke Hebrew, but these weren't just language differences. The Hellenists were Jewish Christians who were part of what's called the diaspora. It's the dispersion of the faithful Jews throughout the Mediterranean world. And so they're, they're Jews who grew up speaking Greek, and not just speaking Greek, but they were culturally Greek. They thought in Greek idioms. They participated in Greek forms of entertainment. They dressed like Greeks. They thought like Greeks. There's an ethnic divide. And what's interesting is, is in the Judaism of the day, in the broader Judaism of the day, there is this division between Hellenist Jews and Hebrew Jews, the Jews that grew up in Palestine or Israel. And it's not that hard to you know, wonder how, you know, what this tension could look like. You have the Jews who are growing up in Israel, and they're like, well, we speak Hebrew. The language of the Bible. Uh, we have kept the traditions of our fathers. We live in the promised land. You Jews who live outside the promised land and speak a foreign language, you're, you're not quite as, as good as us. You can imagine the resentment from the Hellenist Jews in return. And here's a sad thing is that this cultural division that existed broadly is mapped into the church. The same ethnic tension that existed in the broader Jewish world is now brought into the church itself. And we have to note is that it doesn't say that the Hellenists were intentionally overlooked. I think what we're supposed to see here is the apostles are doing too much and they just need administrative help. They're letting things fall through the cracks. Because if this was some kind of systematic oppression of the Hellenist widows, we would see repentance as part of the solution, not just an administrative solution. But the apostles don't say there's sin that need to be repented of. It's just like, we just need a better administrative option. But nonetheless, we have to see that the division here, that the problem here is falling along ethnic lines, ethnic lines where there's already pre-existing tension. And so what that means, brothers and sisters, this is a powder keg of a situation. You think of the tension that can exist in our country between black and white, powder keg. If this is not handled, it's going to explode. And it's gonna rip apart the church and blunt the gospel. If this problem is handled poorly, it's going to explode. And then the third facet of this problem, which is really the emphasis in our text, is that if this problem is not handled well and it leads to the church ripping apart, it's going to blunt the witness of the church. It's going to keep the gospel from going forward. And that's the point. 
It's why the church is here. We see this because it's how this text is sandwiched. If you look at the last verse in chapter 5, it gives a summary statement, and every, this is 5.42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to be sharing the gospel, proclaiming Christ. The, and, then, and then the goal is chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. That's, that's what we want. And if this problem is not dealt with well, if it leads to a fracturing of this church in its infancy, it's going to hinder the gospel. It's going to hamstring the church from being able to step into the mission that Jesus has given it. I mean, why should the Hellenists, who are being overlooked, give the Hebrews the benefit of the doubt? And their, their widows are the ones who are, who are going hungry right now. Why should they work with the Hebrews? Knowing that trying to work with them, that's going to lead to headaches, maybe heartaches, frustrations. It'd be a whole lot easier to go their own way. Likewise, why should the Hebrews listen to the Hellenists? It's likely the Hellenists were a very small minority in the church. I saw one estimate of 10 to 20% of the church was this Greek-speaking. Why should the, the whole church be inconvenienced for the sake of a few? Especially a few who, again, they're never going to have power to do anything about it. Well, the answer, the reason why they work together, why they reach, why they work through this problem is because the very witness of the church and the very power of the gospel is at stake. The reason why the Hellenists and the Hebrews, even though there is this tension, are willing to work through that is because Jesus Christ and his gospel is worthy of any labor, any inconvenience, any heartache it may ask of us. And I think there's such an application for us today you know, um, the divisions of that day mapped into the church. And we see the same thing today, right? I mean, humankind hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. We still, you know, we're sinner saints. We bring the brokenness of our lives into the church community. And so the divisions we see in our culture, we see in the church. What will bring unity for us? And I'm beginning to think more and more what will bring unity to the church is recovering the centrality of Christ's mission and the urgency of that mission. That Jesus has given us a mission which trumps every other opinion or difference we might have and we can work together if that mission is, is, is our mission. To bear witness to the resurrection in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. No, that won't make the problems go away. Right, Just because both the Hebrews and the Hellenists agreed on the importance of the mission, it didn't all of a sudden make the problem of the Hellenist widows being overlooked go away. They had to work together. But if, that's a, if that concern is central, well, it gives us a reason to want to work together. I went to heard a church planner um, share a phrase him and his, his young church would say to each other often to center themselves on what they were all about. And it was this, it was, it's a question. If Jesus is beautiful and if hell is real, then what is God calling us to do? And that, that cuts to the bone. It gets at what we're supposed to say. If Jesus is beautiful, and oh, he is, there's nothing more beautiful than Christ and his gospel. And if hell is real, there's urgency, brothers and sisters. Well, that puts everything in perspective. 
if we as a church are one that, that, that puts the mission of Christ as central, and we feel the urgency of that, we can work through our differences. On the other hand, if a church just gives lip service to the centrality of the mission, but the secondary differences are really what's central, then those differences will be insurmountable, and I think that's what we see in a lot of churches. But I tell you what, as for me and my family, if you love Jesus and you're passionate about his mission, I can walk with you. I may not agree with you on politics. I may not agree with you on gender or whatever. Man, we can walk together. I think this is where the unity of the church will come from. Because Jesus does not want his church divided. We gotta, we gotta remember that. John 17, Jesus prayed that his followers would be one. And so because Jesus does not want his church to be divided, he by his spirit gives the apostles in the church wisdom and grace beyond their, their natural abilities and how to handle the situation. This brings us to our second point, the solution. So again, first, the problem. Second, the solution, the problem. Hellenist widows are being overlooked. It's a, it's a division that may fracture the church, blunt the gospel. But here's a solution, verses two to six. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So in response to a real need in the church, widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution to address a situation that is explosive and to allow the gospel to go forward. What's the solution? Well, it's, it's a division of labor. That's the solution to this problem, a division of labor. And most commentators see in our text this morning at least the prototype of what will become two distinct leadership or leadership positions or offices in the church, pastor and deacon. Uh, if we see this as a prototype, the, the, the apostles stand in for pastors or elders, and these seven men are, are, are deacons. Now, I want to make a qualification here in that these seven men are never called deacons in this text. And second, the 12 are not elders, they're apostles. And so we want to be a little bit circumspect and a little bit humble, but nonetheless, I do see this as at least a prototype of what will become these two distinct uh, leadership positions in the church, the, 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 the office of pastor and the office of deacon. And so I thought it'd be helpful for us this morning, since this is, this, you know, what's God's solution by his spirit to the church? It's these two offices, the office of pastor, the office of deacon. I thought it'd be helpful for us to look at these two offices. What, what categorizes them? How are they distinct? What are their callings? And so the second point in this solution, I want to look a little bit at the office of pastor and the office of deacon. We're going to move into a little bit of teaching here, okay? So first, the office of pastor. Again, one of the main concerns being confronted is not just the plight of the widows, although that is very important, but it's what the apostles say in, in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve in this other way. So they call these seven men. Why? So verse 
4, so that they will devote, so that the apostles can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So if this is a prototype or an example of what the office of pastor is, what is a pastor most basically? He's someone who has been called to the ministry of word and prayer, the ministry of the scriptures and to prayer. It's a devotion. It's a unique responsibility to study the scriptures and to teach the church, and then to pray with the church and for the church. A pastor may do many things in his life. He may build many, uh, you know, impressive ministries. He may do much, but if he's not devoting himself to word and prayer, he's missed it. He's failed. This is the basic of what a pastor is called. This is what I am called to do, to devote myself to the ministry of word and prayer. But, but here's the thing about the office of pastor. We can't build our entire understanding of, of, of a pastor on this one text, because what we're seeing here, guys, we're seeing the church in real time improvise in the face of, of, of a need. There's no church manual that they're reading like, oh, okay, this is what, they're kind of making it up under the inspiration of the Spirit, right? This is why they're making it up is different than our making it up, because this is Scripture and we're not Scripture. But we need to look at the whole witness of the New Testament because what's improvised here kind of firms up later on in the New Testament into these offices of elder, or pastor, and deacon. And so when we look at what is a pastor, we should really look at what's the witness of the whole New Testament. And I, I, I believe when we look at the witness of the New Testament, there's three functions of a pastor. And, and I'm gonna use language of a shepherd because pastors are oftentimes called spiritual shepherds who shepherd the spiritual flock of God, the church. And so these shepherds, spiritual shepherds, are called to lead the flock, to feed the flock, and to protect the flock. Sorry, I didn't get that third alliteration. I know that's a failure as a Baptist pastor, but anyways, lead, feed, protect. So first, pastors are called to lead. Later in Acts 20, verses 28, the apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's gonna be arrested towards the end of his life. And so he calls the pastors of the church of Ephesus and gives them some final farewell commands. So he's speaking specifically to the elders or the pastors. Elders, pastors, synonymous words. Speaking to the elders or pastors of the church of Ephesus. And this is what he tells them. He says, pastors, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Not to get too technical here, but that word overseer is the word episkopos, which is sometimes translated bishop. Historically, Baptists have viewed the office of bishop and pastor as the same. And the reason is because they're used interchangeably. Here Paul is talking to the pastors and he calls them bishops or overseers. So a pastor is called to be an overseer of the flock of God, to exercise some kind of leadership or oversight of the church. This is said again in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is Peter. He says in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, so I exhort again the elders or pastors among you, shepherd the flock of God. Again, that shepherding language that is among you, exercising oversight. Again, not to get nerdy on you, but that's the verb form of overseer. That's overseeing, episcopeo. Over, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Uh, leave those up, uh, uh, BP, leave those up on the screen um, until I tell you, please. But two observations on these passages about the office of pastor as it regards to leadership. First, both deacons and pastors are offices of the church, which means they're genuine positions of leadership. Uh, 
Because pastors are called overseers doesn't mean they're the only leaders in the church. We'll be very clear about that. But the New Testament calls pastors to a function of overseeing that it never calls deacons to. And so the best I can make of it as I study the scriptures is that pastors are given a certain oversight function that is unique, a certain leadership over the church that is unique. Second observation, though, and this has to go very closely with that first observation, is that the leadership that pastors are called to is nothing like the leadership we see in the world. I've got to be very clear about that. This is not the leadership of a CEO who has some great vision, vision for the church and kind of issues dictums that everyone needs to obey. Let's look at what the apostles do when they have this problem in Acts 6. They don't impose some solution on the church as apostles. They probably could have. I mean, they're the apostles. What do they do? They provide leadership. They bring the problem before the church. Hey, this is something that needs to be handled, guys. That's called leadership. They're bringing intentionality to that. But then they have the church select the men. It's in cooperation with the church. And they, the apostles give some qualifications. Again, they provide leadership, but it's in cooperation with the church. The church selects the deacons, and the apostles show their agreement by praying over them. It's not a top-down, kind of ruling by fiat type of leadership. Um, secondly, well, and again, you just look at the first Peter passage when he says exercise oversight, not domineering. In fact, how should pastors exercise oversight? By being examples to the flock. Oftentimes, pastors' greatest leadership is the example of their own lives, not by the executive decisions they make. It's a different kind of leadership. It's a leadership of the book. Pastors are, I think one of the reasons that God calls pastors this, to this oversight function is because of their calling to ministry of word and prayer. We are a people of the book. That means we're a people of the scriptures. Why? Because we believe that God has really spoken. The living almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, has actually spoken to us. And when we come to the scriptures, we don't hear the voices of men or women, but we hear the very voice of God. And so one of the values of our church is we want to be biblically faithful. We want to come to scripture and know what it is and bend ourselves and submit ourselves to what God has revealed in his word. And so a pastor's leadership, it's not like someone saying, hey, I have this great vision. Come follow me while I implement it. Pastoral leadership is this. As best as I can, I've studied the scriptures. I believe this is what God is telling us. Follow me as we implement, as we live out this discipleship together, as we live out these commands together. Different kind of leadership. But anyways, pastors are called to lead first. Second, they're called to feed this is the function that's highlighted in Acts 6, right? The shepherd leads the sheep to past, green pastures, feed on grass. pastor doesn't feed grass to his church. He feeds them the bread of life, the word of God, Christ, as he's found in his scriptures. This is the ministry of word and prayer. And I tell you what, this is the essence of what a pastor does. A pastor leads through his calling to feed the people through word and prayer. A pastor protects the flock through his calling to the ministry of word and prayer. So a pastor is called to, to lead, to feed, third, to protect. The last thing he does, a pastor does, is protect. Again, a shepherd protects the flock of sheep from wolves who want to come in and devour the sheep. Well, I'm not protecting you from being eaten by wolves. Hopefully there are no wolves in Louisville. But I, 
But part of my calling is to protect us from false teaching, um, which won't devour our bodies, but may devour our souls. You know, it's interesting, one of Satan's greatest tools is not necessarily like obvious acts of possession like you might see in The Exorcist or whatever horror movie. It's not necessarily great, you know, pictures of evil. But one of Satan's greatest tools are the authorities and principalities of this world. In other words, the ideas and the loves that undergird a world in rebellion against God. Because those basic ideas and affections of our hearts are what form us from the bottom up. That's why it's been said the pen is more powerful than the sword. You can make someone do something with a sword, but with the pen, you transform them. So part of the role of a pastor is to protect the flock from what is false by teaching what is true. Because the stakes are really high. So these are the three functions of a pastor elder. Lead the flock, feed the flock, protect the flock. Let's look at the office of a deacon. It's interesting, in contrast to the office of pastor, Acts 6 probably is the best description of what the office of deacon actually does. We have qualifications listed later in 1 Timothy and Titus, but in terms of what a deacon actually does, this is probably the best, uh, the, most, the clearest example we have. And so first observation, again, the office of deacon is an office of the church. It is a leadership position which means deacons and pastors together are servants and ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are high qualifications for pastors and there are high qualifications for deacons. This is what, this is what the apostles tell them. He says, pick out these deacons. First, they need to be of good repute in verse three. And deacon has to be someone who's spoken well of. Not someone who half the church hates and the other half loves. Someone who, across the board, people speak well of this person because of the life they have lived. They've lived an honorable life. Second, they need to be full of the Spirit. A deacon is someone who is so full of the Holy Spirit that, that their lives are manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They're someone who's sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, there'd be someone who's wise, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. As John Stott says, a deacon is supposed to be both spiritual and practical. Spiritual because they're leaders in the church. They're ministers of the risen Jesus Christ. And so they need to be able to lead by the example of their lives. But practical, because the thing that the deacons do is they handle some of the practical matters of the church so that the pastors can devote themselves to the ministry of word and prayer. Now I want to I take a moment to honor our deacons. We have deacons in our church. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. We have three deacons, Sean Dennis, Chandler, Bainter and Mickey Bainter, and I want to take a moment to honor them, because you see me every Sunday preach. You know that I'm doing something. But our deacons serve our church sacrificially and, and generously, and, and, and they give of their time and their emotional capacity in all kinds of ways, in ways that most of you will never know. They serve with our church finances. They serve handling our building needs. They serve in hospitality. Uh, they serve caring for our widows. It has been such a blessing to be at Vine Street for a large reason, because we have deacons who labor so selflessly. And so it's allowed me to devote myself in a really unique way to the ministry of word and prayer. 
Your deacons are people who are worthy to be followed. We have men and women who are worthy to be followed. And I think they'd be the first ones to say that they stand on the shoulders of deacons who went before them who labored in the same way for decades. Betty and Wally Jeffries and Gary Cook and Donnie Abersall and Joe Gross who labored in these kinds of sacrificial ways and in fact single-handedly kept the church together at seasons when pastors came and pastors went. We have a legacy of diaconal ministry in this church that's beautiful and wonderful. Praise God for that. I want to make one last note on the word serve and minister before we move on to our third point, which is that, again, the office of pastor and the office of deacon are both callings to serve. This isn't super obvious in our English Bibles, but in the Greek translation, uh, it comes out a little bit clearer, but basically what's happening is the pastor is saying, look, it's not right for us to give up preaching God's word to serve, diakoneo, word that the word deacon comes from, it's not right for us to deacon tables. Now, just so you know, that doesn't, the picture there is not like a restaurant and their waiters. The picture, like the table is likely the place where people brought money for distribution to the poor in the church or the place where the money was distributed. Right? So it's, it's a pretty important role, okay? The, 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 the apostles are saying it's not right for us to get preaching God's word, to serve in this way. We're going we're gonna to call these seven deacons to serve in this way. Why? So that we can devote ourselves to prayer and the diakoneo of the word, the service of the word. Leadership in the church is first and always uh, service. Humble and sacrificial service. Deacons serve in one way, pastors serve in another way. And so a, a word to any who might aspire to ministry in the church, whether ministry as a deacon or ministry as a pastor, the best predictor of future behavior is always past behavior. And if you want to serve the church one day, whether it's a deacon or pastor, are you serving the church now? And many of you are. Praise God. But just because a church calls you to be a pastor or a deacon doesn't mean you all of a sudden become a servant. Are you serving the church now? Um, and i tell you what, at Vine Street, when we're looking to install someone as a deacon or as a pastor, that's one of the bare things we look for. Are they already serving our church? Because just because we call them to be a deacon or a pastor, if they're not already serving the church, doesn't mean they're all of a sudden going to start serving. So, we have this problem. It could tear the church apart. God's solution is a division of labor. The office of pastor called to ministry of word and prayer and the office of deacon to handle the more practical matters of the church so that the pastors can devote themselves to what they're called to. What's the result? This is our third point. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Again, the church has faced three different kinds of oppositions or tests, external threats, internal threats, and this last one is distraction. And so to, to solve this problem or to face this problem of distraction, God raises up leaders in the church who would take on the administration for the care of the widows, a need that was dear to God's heart, but that was distracting the apostles from what they were called to do. God raises up leaders to handle that so the apostles can continue to do what everyone wants them to do, which is devote themselves to the ministry of word and prayer. And as a result, the word of God continued to increase. As a result, the gospel went forward in power 
As a result, people profess faith in Christ because the apostles were allowed to continue to preach the word. And God bless that. My concluding word for us is this. You know, I think the Bible lays out what we call a polity, a pattern of organization for the church. And we want to have a biblical polity. We do. But the goal is never biblical polity. The goal is the mission that Jesus has given us. Um, God, by spirit, institutes these two offices, not for their own sake, but so that the mission might go forward to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are a people who have been entrusted with a sacred sacred and massively important mission. Again, if Jesus and his gospel are beautiful, and oh, they are, and if hell is real, and yes, it is, what are we called to do now? That's the burden. Polity serves that end, never the other way around. And this is, by the way, why we've started our neighborhood walks, because we don't just want to be a church that gives lip service to the mission of God, but we want to be a church that's actually walking that out, and we can do that physically by walking. If you're new to our church, um, our neighborhood walks are something we do in the warmer months, where once a month we meet here at the church, and then we go out into this neighborhood of Germantown in twos or threes, and we're just trying to meet our neighbors, get to know them, hear their stories, and ultimately share Christ with them. We're not going door to door. I don't know if that'd be effective in this neighborhood. We're just looking for people who are already outside, walking around, out on their porch, and we just talk to them. We're going to be starting that back up uh, the last Sunday of March, March 26th at 6 p.m. This is what we're called to do. Come join us. If you haven't been before, come join us. We'd love to have you with us. You may be saying in your head, Mike, that is so far outside of my comfort zone. And I would say, yes, it is for all of us. All of us have sweaty palms when we go out. But it's a beautiful thing. And I think we meet Christ in a way that we will not meet him Otherwise, when we step out in the mission that he's given to us. And I tell you what, some of us, you know, are physically unable <laughs> to go tramp around Germantown. Or some of us work in that time, or some of us have family obligations, and we just, we can't be there. Okay, you can still participate by praying. We have a text thread, I do through GroupMe, where literally the people are going out are giving live updates of, hey, we just met this person, pray for them. And so you can be at home with your phone on, engaging in the mission of Christ by praying. You can be at your workplace, just leave your phone on, you hear that buzz, pull it out, say a quick prayer, put it back. You're still engaging in the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. Brothers and sisters, we're here to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God has come to us, he became a man. He bore all the sins of the world on himself. And he died so that we might know what real life is. Go and tell what you have tasted. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, risen King, and love of our hearts, May we value you above everything. May we love you above all the wealth of the world, all the comforts of the world. May our hearts will one thing, and that is to 
devote our lives to you and the mission you've given to us. Help us to see that it's a beautiful mission. It's an urgent mission. It's one that, that demands our all, and it's one that's worth giving our all for. And as we go out into our neighborhood to be faithful to this mission, oh Christ, may your spirit give our words supernatural power. May you give us courage, for we confess we're often afraid. But you, Christ, are the Lord of the harvest, and you've told us the harvest is plentiful. May we be some of the workers who go out into it. And may you be at work. We offer all this to you. In your holy name, amen.